evening and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm John Tanza on this live broadcast from Washington. Here are some of the top stories making news across Sudan and South Sudan this Tuesday, January 9, 2024. The chairman of the South Sudan's Electoral Commission says the country has limited time to conduct the scheduled December 2024 elections. There are only three stages. Stage one is civic education. Stage two is registration of voters. And then stage three is to go for, for voting. If we are serious, we run it very smoothly without any difficulty. And a Sudan expert is calling on the international community to silence the guns in his country. Uh, well-established record of mass atrocities, war, crimes, crimes against humanity uh, is well-established and uh, independently reported. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. South Sudanese analyst has expressed doubts over South Sudan's ability to conduct elections in December. Jogmadu Jok says the National Elections Commission has limited time to carry out its work. For VOA News, Manyang David Mayar reports from Juba. Members of the South Sudan's National Elections Commission were sworn in Monday, two months after the commission was reconstituted. Abene Gowakuk, chairman of the National Elections Commission, says elections can be held in December if the transitional government provides the necessary funding and security for the body to do its work. But Jog Jok, a South Sudanese analyst, says the remaining 11 months is too short for the commission to deliver a credible election. The swearing-in of the members of NEC is only a very small fraction of the host of things that need to happen in order to ensure that the elections announced by SPLM and by President Kiir have the slightest chance of creating a new political progress. You have the problem of the constitution, the problem of census, which is the basis for constituency demarcation, the issue of logistics and finances. Where does a country that is broke, reeling under international sanctions and facing economic meltdown, find money to conduct elections. Madud also says the composition of the commission could give rise to potential disputes as the election preparations are carried out. The National Elections Commission vowed to hold elections in South Sudan in the time is stipulated in the transitional roadmap. The chairman says there is enough time for the commission to carry out its activities and hold the country's first elections. There are only three stages. Stage one is civic education. Stage two is registration of voters. And then stage three is to go for, for voting. If we are serious, we run it very smoothly without any difficulty. Akok says he is aware of some of the challenges, adding that the leadership of the country should solve the problems on time. The issue of the overseas or accommodation is still uh, not yet settled. Uh, the second one is the availability of resources. The resources should be availed to us to allow us to start to visit the states and see their uh, structures practically in the field. Uh, the third one is the election timeline. You know, time is going, and the more we are not serious to implement any of them within these six months, then we will not reach our targets. 
Akok says the National Elections Commission needs at least $2 million to run the elections. He calls on leaders in the country to facilitate the conduct of free and fair elections in the country. The United Nations mission in South Sudan has repeatedly told the transitional government to ensure that elections are free and fair. For VOA News, I'm a young David Mayor in Juba. Still on elections, a retired UN political officer who has served in several United Nations missions including Somalia, Sierra Leone, and Liberia, says the credibility of post-conflict elections like the one scheduled in South Sudan for December depends on fostering confidence in the process with the Electoral Commission being a key factor. Peter Tingwa told my colleague Nabil Biagio that South Sudan's election will be a big test. Elections after a conflict always are a mechanism or a way of getting the country back to to constitutionalism. So they are they are a little bit different than when you have election in a normal country like Kenya. In which case, you have to take into account several things, several things that will bring parties and the people together. You not you have to have people to have confidence in that system or in that election that things are uh, they, they will have confidence in in the outcome so that is the election i've been associated with in the almost uh, four peace missions even peace missions i've been to in the case of South Sudan, of course, building that trust is uh, more important than ever. And South Sudan has just sworn in its election commission, like we said, which was reconstituted back in November 2023. Before getting more into the responsibilities and the tasks of this commission, what did you think about its composition and its ability to deliver a credible election with months left until the vote? Most peace agreements will have some form of how the election will be conducted is done right at the beginning of the uh, what normally is the transitional period. A lot of the things, how people will be represented there will be explained or touched in the agreement. I think the, our election uh, in South Sudan, maybe it is there, I'm not uh, very well versed in it, but this is always the the case in which case parties to the conflict and non-parties to the conflict must all be involved and participate in like for example the electoral commission should have representation of the parties all parties women youth and they look at the regional balance it is also there because most uh, elections or conflicts will divide the country into so many parties. So you ensure that within that uh, electoral body which will make the decision, that all these factors are looked at. Youth, women, uh, fighting forces, non-fighting forces, but regional balance will also have to be uh, included. Regional balance, women, youth, Political parties, uh, civil society, all must be brought in. That's what nearly is done in the uh, 
elections that follow a conflict. Now with the key tasks that must be achieved in the remaining 11 months, is it possible to carry out everything required to deliver a free, fair and credible election with uh, sufficient support from friends? Given, given the political will, given the resources and support, external support, it is quite possible. Why? Because many of the peace missions have been to the transitional period in just two years. For example, the last one I have been in was two years. So in two years, the mission completed two things. One, so in the, the supporting the transitional government. One, disarmament, total disarmament and the restructuring of the, uh, of the security sector. And then ran the election, which brought Madame Saleh uh, there. It was done in one year. That's Liberia. So it could be done. But the difference is, one, Liberia is a very small country. South Sudan is a bigger country with more difficult uh, areas to cover. So really, it, uh, one year, well, unless everything is in, in place, plenty of money, support from international community, support from the uh, UN Electoral Assistance Division, support from the mission. Uh, I know election is a sovereign thing, but in order to get back to that, you must get the support of others in order to help you to go through this transition back to constitutionalism. That's Peter Tingwa, a retired UN political officer who served in several United Nations missions in post-conflict countries, including Somalia, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. He spoke to my colleague Nabil Biagio from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, earlier today. Sudan's army chief, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, rejected an agreement signed between the paramilitary rapid support forces and political groups in recent weeks. Sudanese paramilitary leader, General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, said he was committed to a ceasefire to end the fighting that has wrecked his country. Khalid Kerr discusses the implications of their disagreement. It's predictable that Burhan was not going to join anything um, that looked to him like it had been already pre-cooked. And so, um, in many ways, uh, Hemeti's uh, gambit that moving around the region and pushing forward a, a narrative that he is ready uh, for peace was um, not really intended to bring Burhan to the table, but rather to say, I was ready to make a, a peace agreement and Burhan is not. Uh, you know, Hamdan Dagalo, as we mentioned, has already met with five African presidents. He appears to have been received very well. Uh, what do Sudanese think about his shadow diplomacy? Hemeti, uh, he, he knows quite well that his shuttle diplomacy only has a limited impact domestically. Uh, people care much more about what the RSF is doing internally than what its leader is doing in the region. Uh, we have seen uh, Hemeti meet with, uh, you know, successive um, leaders in Africa with Museveni, with uh, Ruto, with Gele of Bikuti with um, uh, Abiy Ahmed of Addis Ababa. You know, what we have seen is that they have greeted him as a president. In fact, they some of them have even referred to him as uh, a president. And that internally has rubbed up people uh, um, massively. What we have seen, I think, is that his fortunes internally have actually decreased as his um, 
Brett's reputation in the region seems to have undergone some kind of um, resurgence. Does anyone come to mind, uh, Khaloud, that can bring these two uh, generals together to have some conversation that leads to ending the war in Sudan? You know, these generals have spent so much time, since even before this war broke out in April, um, effectively bringing together their own, you know, their, their friends in the region. So those who support Burhan are not the same as those support, who support Hamidi. There are very few who have strong relationships with both. And what this means is that you're going to have to get a coalition of these international actors, making sure that you have those who are closer to Hamidi and those who are closer to Burhan together at the same table with a common cause and a common agenda. That's going to be quite difficult, while um, the regional actors seem to be going all in with their support of these two generals, rather than a support to ending the war. But really, it's in no one's interest to see Sudan disintegrate. It's in no one's interest to see the state completely collapse. And I think as long as that objective is at the foreground, um, countries like, for example, the United States should be able to corral some of these uh, countries in the region, most of whom are U.S. allies, to a unified singular agenda. We haven't seen that happen yet. Khaloud, how would you characterize the cost of this war in terms of the emotional, economic, infrastructural damage that has already been done to the Sudanese people? I mean, I don't think you can put, you know, a sort of a, a number on the economic cost. Um, what we have seen is that there has been, you know, such a big blow to the Sudanese economy, um, such a big blow to ordinary sort of economic activity, production, etc. Because Sudan is, was, is such a centralized country and most of those went through Khartoum, which is now, uh, you know, a barren war zone in, in many ways. For those who still live in Khartoum and other parts of the country, I think the, the cost of this war is immeasurable. Uh, we have seen um, 19 million uh, children out of school um, and continue to, to be out of school with no hope of, of returning to education. We've seen 80% of health facilities being completely out of uh, order and not functioning. We've seen um, countless lives um, lost the numbers that we see right now around 10,000, 15,000. They are, I think, a gross underestimate because we're unable to properly measure the number of people um, who have been killed. But we, we see all sorts of atrocities, lootings, sexual assault, um, etc., being carried out, uh, particularly in RSF-dominated areas. And there seems to be no sign of um, you know, ceasing of these um, calamities that are befalling the Sydney's public. And we also don't see any sign that this war is going to end anytime soon. That's Khaloud Kher, a Sudanese civil society activist. She spoke with my colleague Esther Gipiyu Ewat on Monday. Still on Sudan, an analyst is calling on African leaders and the international community to wake up to the human rights and regional security challenges posed by the conflict in Sudan. Suleiman Baldo, the director of the Sudan Transparency and Policy Tracker, says the international community should rise to the challenge and not abandon the people of Sudan. This comes as Rapid Support Forces leader Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo has been touring several African countries, expressing his willingness for unconditional ceasefire. Baldo spoke with VOA's James Batty. He is uh, trying to establish some legitimacy for himself as a statesman 
and is being given that uh, opportunity by heads uh, of states and governments in Africa for their own reasons. I don't know why, because he's the head of a genocidal uh, militia that is wreaking havoc in Spain. It's a well-established record of mass atrocities, war crimes, crimes against humanity. Uh, is well-established and uh, independently reported. So I don't know why uh, African heads of state are giving uh, the man uh, all this presidential reception and uh, recognition. I don't see it as necessary for getting him to a negotiating table. On the contrary, they should have dealt with him without according him that recognition. But could it be perhaps that uh, Africa is tired of the killing and the war in Sudan and uh, they are willing to accept at least uh, a peaceful resolution? Well, you get a peaceful recognition by, you know, avoiding to give recognition and legitimacy to those who are committing the killings and the atrocities. Both the head of the army and the head of the rapid support forces are responsible for the destruction of Sudan and the uprooting of its population. And they, they should not be given that legitimacy by the international community. And in the fairest order of things, they should not be given that legitimacy by the African heads of state and, and governments. But how do you bring about peace without the heads of the warring parties? You put maximum pressure on them. You deny them recognition. You impose uh, economic embargoes on them. This is how you do it. And you do it as part of a regional and international uh, integrated uh, coordinated strategy. I noticed that uh, the military leader, Berhan, has also rejected what Dagalo is doing. Yes, he, he was uh, sort of uh, irritated by the reception uh, Dagalo has received. And uh, now he is saying he's no longer interested. Having agreed to this meeting... What happened is that in between, Meti has surfaced and began this regional tour and received all this uh, official uh, recognition from several member states of the IGAD, you know, Kenya, Uganda, Ethiopia, Djibouti. He, he has been to all these states and was received, uh, you know, as a, a statesman. And that's why, that's a major uh, reason why, uh, you know, Burhan is today is no longer interested in meeting, negotiating a solution. I don't think this is the right attitude, but it's a response and an angry response, I think, to the uh, reception that Hamidi has received. From where you sit, do you think uh, some movement is being made towards peace? At this time, you know, there was a window of opportunity, as they said, by the invitation of the IGAD for this summit between Burhan and Hamiti. This window appeared to have been uh, closed given the, the development which we just discussed. That is to say the regional tour of Hamiti. But he may still be interested in meeting Hamiti under some other convening, uh, mediating uh, team, you know. Could it be Jeddah? Could it be the African Union or United Nations? All these actors really need to rise up to the challenge of one of the main crises in the world in terms of its human rights and humanitarian costs, in terms of the risk it poses to regional security and international security. But none of them so far have a clear strategy on how they are going to approach peacemaking and stuff. They should really, you know, be answering this question, what next now that the possibility of a meeting under IGAT is seeming to, to you know, passing, uh, to, to be fleeing, uh, you know, escaping us, you know. 
And therefore, I'm calling on the international community to really get its act together, gear up for the challenge, and meet that challenge and not abandon the people of Sudan while they are just, uh, you know, I don't know what they are doing in the face of this major crisis, except uh, issuing statements, you know, we haven't seen much action. That's Suleiman Baldo, director of the Sudan Transparency and Policy Tracker. He spoke with my colleague James Batty earlier today. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Coming up, rep survivors want accountability in Nigeria. Find out why after the break. I'm Mark Bill Yabaro, and I have some electrifying news for you. AFCON 2023 is here, and I'll be at Ivory Coast covering all things AFCON for VOA Africa. We'll have exciting coverage on radio, TV, and all of our digital platforms. Make sure you check out voaafrica.com for AFCON updates. Stay locked right here on VOA Africa. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Nigeria is a signatory to several international treaties aiming to end sexual and gender-based violence against women. However, the problem persists. Now, some want new laws to hold offenders accountable. Timothy Obiezu has this story from Jos Plateau, Nigeria. Inside these walls in central Nigeria's Plateau State are women seeking refuge from sexual violence. Stella Kenneth was raped by her father in 2017 when she was 10 years old. My father started touching my body. And it, one day he, he called me aside after our devotion and he said, I'm trying to teach you what life is so no guy will come and deceive you. I love you. I was scared that if I tell it out, my father is going to beat me. The abuse continued until last year when Kenneth told a family friend what was happening and they reported it to the authorities who arrested her father. She says the experience impacted her self-esteem. When I came, I was not friendly. I was kind of rugged. Not like, I mean, what I mean rugged, not so that kind of socialized. Always kind of be like a bad person, like bad girl. The non-profit Christian Women for Excellence and Empowerment in Nigerian Society launched in 2010 and says the safe house is helping many survivors of sexual violence like Kenneth cope with the trauma. Violence against women and girls is on the rise more than 20 years after Nigeria signed the Maputo Protocol, an African charter on women's rights. Recently, the French ambassador to Nigeria, Emmanuel Bledman, said economic challenges in the country are driving the increase in the number of cases of gender-based violence. 18-year-old Kachola Musa says she was raped by her uncle eight years ago. She says she's still afraid to report the case to her family. I lied and I told them that someone wanted to kidnap me. So after then I regret it 
I was afraid to report the case. In December, Nigerian lawmakers called for a review of the laws to enable enforcement agents to take decisive measures. Janet Beatrice, the safe house manager at Plato, is all for a review of current laws. For me, I think either life imprisonment or death sentence can even serve as a detriment to others out there. Because the gravity of this offense is a lifetime memory that has been created in the heart and in the life of the victim. Beatrice says harsher laws and stronger enforcement could act as a deterrent and help women here feel safe. Timothy Obiezu, VOA News, Just Plato State, Nigeria. As two more journalists are killed covering the, Gaza, the war in Gaza, the United Nations says it is alarmed by the historically high death toll, with nearly 80 media workers killed since October. VOA Press Freedom Editor Jessica Jarrett has the story. A somber day as Al Jazeera Gaza bureau chief Wael Al-Dadu says a final farewell to his son Hamza. A fellow reporter for Al Jazeera, Hamza Al-Dadu, is one of two journalists killed Sunday near Rafa. For Wael Al-Dadu, the loss adds to the family's grief. The bureau chief in October learned during a live broadcast that a strike had killed his wife, 15-year-old son, 7-year-old daughter and a grandson. His son Yair was seriously injured. And Dadu himself was injured while on assignment in December. How can someone receive the death of their oldest son and everything in my life after I lost some of my family members, my wife, son Mahmoud, and Sham, and Sam? How can I receive this? Dadu San Hamza and Agent France press freelancer Mustafa Terer were returning from an assignment Sunday when an Israeli airstrike hit their vehicle. The Israeli military told Reuters that the IDF had identified and struck a terrorist and it was aware of the reports that two other suspects in that vehicle were also hit. The two journalists killed Sunday are the latest to die in what watchdogs say is an unparalleled death toll for media in war. As of Monday, at least 79 journalists have been killed, nearly all Palestinians, says the Committee to Protect Journalists. The high rate over a short period alarmed the United Nations. A spokesperson Monday reiterated calls that journalists not be targeted. Florencia Sotonino is an associate spokesperson for the United Nations. Journalists, you know, they risk their lives to bring um, the truth um, to everyone all over the world. And this is increasingly hard uh, in the conditions that they are facing over there. Israel's embassy in Washington did not respond to VOA's request for comment. But its spokesperson has said previously its forces never deliberately target journalists. Investigations by groups, including Reuters, dispute that claim. Analysis last month found Israeli tank fire in October had killed the news agency's journalist Issam Abdallah in what appears to be a deliberate attack. Investigations found that Israel knew the location of the news team. Lebanon bureau chief Maya Gabeli says that Reuters is pushing for accountability and she highlighted the dangerous conditions under which her colleagues work. That it is a devastating pattern in which we're seeing journalists being unable to do their jobs and being prevented from doing their jobs by that kind of indiscriminate bombardment. With intense fighting and access to Gaza restricted, accounts from local journalists are vital, she says. When you have journalists who are there and who are providing these, these live feeds, it just makes accountability that much more possible. As Dadu buries another of his children, the International Criminal Court confirms to Reporters Without Borders that crimes against journalists are included in its investigation into the war.
Jessica Dree, VOA News. That's all we prepared for you this Tuesday, January 9, 2024. We now leave you with Kuzo's clan and the song Binia Juba. I'm your host, John Tanza, on this live broadcast from Studio 14 in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Nabil Biagio, and engineer, Cornelius Tuna, we wish you a lovely evening. Remember to join us tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from The Voice of America.